I'm Jensen Bueller. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast. Now 50% better. Quentin, we are 50% better because we have with us a very special guest, Mr. Michael Locke. Afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, sir. Hello. Thank you for joining us on this uh, lovely Portland afternoon. Yeah, oh, my pleasure. Great to be out west. Yeah, you survive the the onslaught of Portlandian drivers and trains and everything Just that about. it is. <laughs> um, Michael, I think a lot of people in the industry know who you are, but maybe not all of our listeners do. So I wanted to quickly just run through your resume. Sure. Started at Honda in the UK. Yeah, that's right. Then on to Honda Motor Europe. Yeah. With Honda, what, five, six years? Uh, just under six years, yeah. yeah. Then to Triumph mm-hmm. for about the same duration. Yep. Three years in Europe, three years in the US. Okay. Mm. That I didn't know. Mm. Then to Ducati UK. Uh, yep, that's right. Before taking over Ducati North America, yeah, out in uh, California, yeah, and then you, and then you took a turn. You you went and worked for for Think, which is is that a part of Mercedes? No, Think uh, Think was an electric vehicle company um, no, that had no been um, originate uh, originated by Ford. Oh, okay. It was a collaboration with Ford. Ford owned. Uh, um, uh, equity in it for a while and then it gained independence which was at the point that i went to go and work for them okay and then you went from there to lamborghini yes pension for italian things perhaps <laughs> and now you're the ceo of ama pro racing american flat track that's right awesome well we're very stoked to have you here with us today and i think there's there's a lot of experience there that hopefully we can tap into and, and pick your brain about because I'm definitely curious to hear your thoughts on what's going on in the industry and what's going on in racing and flat track and the whole kit and caboodle. I'll do my best. Yeah. Kit and caboodle. Kit and caboodle. You got to be careful. We're in use to cat puns here and that's... Yeah, that we, was... we should probably come up with like a primer for guests where it's yeah, like, like, hey, we be, be roll pretty it. hard on cat puns. Oh, gosh. It's right. going to be... Michael's actually our last guest, so... <laughs> First and last. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's delve into what you think is happening in the industry right now, like in specifically in the United States. What is the, the, the status of motorcycling in the United States? I think the industry um, and by the industry, I'd start with um, new bikes yep. and OEMs. I would say the industry is still somewhat struggling to find its feet after um, the worst economic recession to hit our industry in its existence. I think that there are interesting trends. Um, The demographic of the customers who buy bikes is changing, has been changing for a while. Some brands have good years and bad years, but overall I would say the industry is still trying to read the tea leaves to work out where it's going when i looked at or at least the the feeling i got coming out of 2015 going into 2016 it it felt like there is at least some momentum we saw manufacturers especially japanese manufacturers starting to release new models it feel like it felt like things were starting to get back into the groove and then 2016 ended up being such i wouldn't say a disaster for the industry but we Mm. definitely took a step back i mean did you see that coming because that that surprised me yeah, I mean, I think I think what you saw, that's in, entirely correct. Um, what you got to bear in mind, though, with this is that um, from the time that manufacturers decide to do something to it actually happening is three years. Mm. So 
new models coming to market in 15 and 16 were conceived in 2012 and 13. Um, so you have to go back and look at that. Now, occasionally they will shelve plans to bring product to market because the prevailing conditions have changed or, but generally speaking, if you, if you look back over the last six to eight years in the, in the new bike business, you'll see, um, a collapse at the end of 2008, uh, that, that really continued uh, dramatically until 2010, 2011. Then you saw some plateauing and you saw some green shoots. It was at that moment the manufacturers pressed the button for new product. That product comes to market in 2015, 16. Um, so there is a, um, there's like a dance being done between the marketplace and the OEMs. And occasionally they ask to dance. They ask each other to dance at the same time. Sometimes one's ready and the other one isn't. Hmm. Um, and you see that in times of instability. Where you have gentle or progressive growth, it's very easy for an OEM to look down the pipe. But when it's going up and down, or worse, if it's just going down, and at the same time, different sectors of bikes are declining or um, uh, improving in performance uh, and in demand at different different stages, it's impossible to have a real clear read on it. And you can see, I think, in the um, very marked decline of the sport and superbike business that has spiral downwards at a greater degree than any other sector um no one back in uh 2010 2011 2012 could have looked forward six years and said that's not going to come back um uh, and and on although i think the big success story of the industry of the last few years meaning the the kind of retro scrambler cafe racer loose genre you could see that from years ago you could see that once a generation of riders who remembered the 1970s very fondly got to an age where they could start buying those 70s bikes and and restoring them or better still buying replicas of them you could see that coming but the sport bike decline i don't think was as um easy to read as that and um so you will see new product coming to market now in the superbike sector without, frankly, a really strong business plan behind it. Um, they're they're the just doing what they think they got to do, what they know, right? Which is every X amount of years, re-upping, giving it a, a little bit of a, an update and or if it was 10 years ago, it would be two-year cycle. Yep. But now it's five-year cycle, if not eight-year cycle, something like that. And even if it is eight-year cycle, like we're seeing with the CBR, it's just mild, even though, oh, well, we've changed all kinds of stuff. It's oh, not really, right? So we're seeing that. The, the dynamics completely changed, right? The, the industry that we all knew and the formula within it was you develop product um, through racing. Um, you see how you can translate some of that technology and some of that componentry into street bikes. You let everybody know a year or two in advance through the racing, i.e., look here, look, 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 yeah. look at this. Wow, look at this new widget. Because you know it's coming to the street bike. You start speaking to the marketplace and saying, that sport bike you've got was cool, but it's really no longer cool. You need this. Yeah. And, and, and we did this for 40 years. Yeah. Very successfully. And everybody was happy. The OEMs were happy. The dealers were happy. And the customers were happy. And then we hit this brick wall. We hit the brick wall of, uh, of economics. 
we also hit the brick wall of demographics. And we also hit the brick wall of um, social acceptance. That 200 horsepower, 200 mm -hmm. miles an hour, it's, like, it's answering a question no one's asking anymore. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm part of the generation that grew up drooling over the spy shots of new bikes in the yeah. 70s and 80s and dreaming that would one day be me. And then when you actually got to ride those bikes, they were better than yeah. what you were riding. Yeah. There was a there was an imperative reason there was it was imperative you had to have it. Now you know what I have a 1098s yep. at home. Yep. Um, it's way better than I am. Uh, it always will be. I'm not going to get any better. Um, the tires I can put on that bike are going to get better. The bike was already way better than me. What do I need from 2017? So and do that, you, that's the problem. Do you see that as and, and I call it the plateau of technology where. How much better are you going to get? And right now it seems like electronics packages for sure can help that. But we're already at a plateau. There's not that much more of a ramp up. We're not keeping up with tire technology for the longest time. Tires, we were, we were chasing, tires were chasing the bikes. Like yes. The, the tires were not up to it. Now it's pretty good and there's a balance with it where, I don't know, I don't need the newest, latest, greatest, fastest thing, right? And I am of a generation that was similar, I would say in the 90s, and early 2000s, I was still one that wanted the next latest, greatest, what was coming, right? You want to know what was coming. Now I'm really not bothered, right? And, and for the same reason. I'm, I'm not a pessimist on this, though. I don't think it's over. Yeah, sure. I uh, think okay. it needs reinvention. Hmm. Um, uh, if, you asked me, um, uh, if you asked me what I would be looking forward to in the marketplace, what could a manufacturer do to stimulate me? I'd say get more mass out of it. Make it lighter. Light is good, yeah. And 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 do that and do that in innovative ways. Number one, number two, um, construct with all these electronic tricks you've got a, a a performance map that suits me, a performance map that I can really use on the street, particularly when no one's looking, on track <laughs> days. Yeah, you could produce a performance map that would make me feel like a superhero. Yeah. The problem is that to feel a superhero on any of the latest generation superbikes, you've got to be doing a buck 30, a yeah. buck 40 in order to get into that zone. And I'm not sure I, I want to do that anymore. Um, yeah. Certainly not on the street. Even if no one was looking, I'm not sure I want to do that. So, so I think get mass out of it. I think use the electronics to uh, really empower the customer. Um, uh, and number three, let, let's, let's really start a, cr a creative period for what a motorcycle looks like. They still look like they did 125 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Go to a motorcycle museum. Everything's still in exactly the same place. Now th that, that, that is testament to an enduring design. What, but it, like it's over? That's done? 4,000 years from now, motorcycles are going to still look exactly <laughs> the same? When well, do we start? Yeah, and, and, but and it's tough you, when you got two wheels and it's only so much space to to do design work, right? Here's the thing: the the design the d design innovation now doesn't need to deliver better performance. Yeah, you can mess with it. Now go go back to the 80s and the 90s and uh, and look at the experiments that were done both by European and Japanese manufacturers with all kinds of things. They didn't deliver improvements in performance. I mean, hub center steering didn't yeah. deliver an improvement in performance. You know what? You don't need one now. Deliver the same performance 
with some innovation. Give people something to get excited about. We all know the most excited most people are with their bikes is when they're standing in front of them on their driveway with their buddies there. That's about as excited as most people get now. But I'm not arguing that that's invalid. That's a perfectly valid part of the experience. Admiring the art, admiring the technology, admiring the engineering. And and (laughs) you don't need to do 200 miles an hour. You don't need to do 200 miles an hour to enjoy that, unless the product was built specifically to deliver that and nothing else. And so I think we have to ask ourselves in in the in the industry some questions if you look at custom bikes that are being built and have been built for the last five years on the sports end of it there's some there's some product i would pay for it hasn't come from an oem if you what's an example okay let me let me think of an example my word i mean without wanting to without wanting to insult or upset anybody even using bmw engines yeah, there have been yeah. custom bikes built yeah. that are mean and uh, and aggressive and assertive pieces of art, and the geometry looks right. I think I think the creativity is out there, and I think the connection between the customer and the product shouldn't really change. It should make your heart skip a beat. It really should. You know, I, I just I bought a bike recently. Yeah, yeah. Would you, would you buy? It wasn't a great bike. <laughs> but it's a great bike for me. I bought a VF1000R. Really? Yeah, I found one. This is a, for, for those who don't know, and there's probably a lot that don't know, this is a 600 plus pound bike. Yep. And it was like the gnarliest super bike, at least for me as a young person in the early 90s, I remember happening upon one of these in a parking lot. I was delivering tickets for a travel agency and I was on my Honda NX125 and I'm somewhere delivering tickets and I pull around and there's this thing and it's a fully fared red, white, and blue sport bike. And I recognized it because I was a Honda rider and I understood Hondas, but I had seen VFRs, but I'd never seen a VF1000R and it had the strange wheels. They're Comstar. Is that what you call those? Yeah, the press. They're, the they're press pressed wheels. together in a really interesting way mm-hmm. using plated metal instead of spokes or as spokes. And the handlebars had these adjustments on them. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's adjustable with these little serrations. And there's so many things that were going on when I see this bike. And I didn't understand what it was other than it was just a big crotch rocket. And then later on, when I had to put one up on one of my lifts and like <laughs> tie it down and realized how heavy it was when I was working you, you on it. you have to get a second lift to get oh it Oh my the gosh. <laughs> no, and for sure. But that was Honda in all of its V4 glory. And I would imagine that that was for you, especially having been at, at the incipient time of your career, that was like the big deal, or I would assume. And that, that was why you decided you wanted to get that. Uh, absolutely. It, it's a tough bike to ride fast. <laughs> I bet. But those are the, I think, the bikes that are the most fun to ride fast. I love riding a slow bike fast. Yeah. Well, and I wouldn't call it slow. It's just heavy. No, it, it's, a, it's a locomotive. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And it has a weird, doesn't it have a 16-inch front, 18-inch rear, something strange like that? Yeah, just to make it that little bit oh, more yeah. difficult. And and they were known, and this was the one that I was working on 20 years ago, literally, uh, for especially if they had any wear on their front tires, if you happen to let your hands off the bars at about 35 miles an hour, it'd start doing a little wiggle. The whole thing would wiggle until you got your hands back on the bars. And that was a notable, like, oh my gosh, because there's one thing to have a little wiggle on a supermoto bike that weighs 250 to 300 pounds. It's another with that massive of a machine. So sorry to hijack that, but you're saying that you bought that 
because I want to feel alive. Yeah. Hmm. I don't want the machine to feel alive and me to be uh, giving it a round of applause. I want to feel alive. I want to go through that corner on that VF1000R with a little bit of a cold sweat. <laughs> <laughs> Only a little bit. Yeah, sure. And come out the other side and, and, and get home after that ride and feel I've had a bit of a workout. Yeah. That me and the bike found a way to do it. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, you know, I'm not belittling the, um, the astonishing quality, the astonishing quality and performance and packaging of the modern bike. They really are perfect. In fact, they're all perfect. Um, but I'm not sure I ever got into motorcycling in the first place for that. Hmm. Um, I got in for the, maybe on some level for the pursuit of that perfection, although I never would have articulated it. It's, it's the man and the machine against yeah, sure. the elements. That was why we all did it. And, and I, I, I just, I just fear that the, um, the real, the advanced nature of the machinery, um, has the potential of taking it away from re from you relating to it and uh and and so on and motorcyclists have this kind of fierce independent spirit and actually although none of us would ever admit it kind of a luddite view of the world mm -hmm. yeah i, but, um, I can uh -huh. see it in my comment section sure. Absolutely. And, and i and i and i kind of like that i i like the luddite view of the world a little bit and um you know it's it's the modern horse right it, the motorcycle is the modern horse, and the horse was always a bit gnarly and unruly. The motorcycle could be as well, not to the point it, you know, puts your safety in danger. That's your lookout. But, you know, modern safe motorcycles that have character and have some flaws and some limitations, I, 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 I have more of a, um experience with that than with something that whirs into life and, um, you know, you pass your hand over the dashboard and it tells you everything. I... It might be my generation, but my generation bought the bikes. Yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> and and we don't want to go the same way as rock and roll, right? <laughs> you feel rock and roll is dead? Really? When the well, Who plays the Super Bowl halftime show, I don't know, man. I don't know. You know, I, I, I was talking to somebody, somebody young in my family <laughs> uh, who called me, my niece called me. Um, last month and said, hey, hey, Uncle Mike. She said, I just wanted to call you. I was thinking of you today. I said, oh, yeah. She goes, well, you know, it's it's the anniversary of David Bowie dying, and I know that's probably sitting with you and, and so on. <laughs> okay. David yeah. Bowie died. Yeah. Yeah. He's gone. No one's replacing him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's new. It's different. Rock and roll, I think, you know, maybe it's still alive, but <sighs> motorcycling needs to stay alive. Yeah. Okay. I feel like that's the old grumpy man perspective on yeah. rock and roll. But that's funny, though, because I, I get the same thing when I talk to motorcyclists and when I talk to manufacturers where there is kind of this get off my lawn, old grumpy guy about motorcycles then versus motorcyclists now. And, and you know, I think the industry is still struggling to f understand how to communicate with millennials. It's it's interesting that we're talking to you this weekend when it's the the one motorcycle show up here, which I would say is a millennial haven. When mm. you go in and you see the crowd, it is a bunch of 30-somethings or younger. Yeah. It's not the other way around where like maybe if you go to a Moto America or MotoGP race and it skews a lot older. Yeah, and it's part of the reason I'm in town. Yeah. I mean, I'm in town to observe and to interact and to um, try and come to some 
conclusions as to whether what this one moto show and the mama tried and the handbill whether they represent a um a vision of a potential future or whether they're a transition or whether they're the dying throws um i don't think they are by the way and i think that if you contrast uh the the crowd you're talking about are going to be in portland this weekend you contrast that to the demographic of a crowd that go to an ims show mm-hmm. sure yeah you would find that there's something going on oh yeah. yeah um and 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 that fascinates me is that okay so there's a maybe there's a millennial um uh slice to the audience here maybe they dominate but are are they are they in dialogue with with manufacturers or are they creating their own industry um that are that are that it's almost a counterculture to the oem led absolutely um, that's what i see for and, sure and, and and i i and i see uh, i see sight of that but i don't know what it is yet or whether this is a um, a pathway for them to get to an oem world i i suspect not not in the way that we ever knew um that the creativity and the demand and the expression um, relationship between uh, the OEM industry and the buyer has changed. And it's not just motorcycles, it's everything. The consumer is so much more powerful now and more visible. How does that translate into our industry? You know, that, that cycle of the formula I was talking about, about OEMs teasing a new technology or could this bike be coming and, and, and fanning the flames of demand and then unleashing it on a grateful audience was a formula that worked really well for 40 years. But those people are all 60 now. Yes. And their kids and their grandkids have grown up in a different world where they're able to express themselves and self-publish and be visible and be powerful. You know, a single consumer can damage a brand. Well, actually, 30 years ago, the brand would tell you to sod off. Yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. So the world what was is your different. recourse. The world is different yeah. and probably, probably for good, probably for good. Who knows? History will tell us. Probably for good, the world is in a better place. How does that affect the industry that we love? Um, where the manufacturers have learnt a mantra over years and years and years of, we have the vision, we have the capability, uh, and we will tell them what they like, and they will like it. Um, so, so a show like this one, this weekend in Portland, is fascinating for me just to wander around and people watch and look at the product and and look at what people respond to and what they don't and and hey maybe there'll be a whole bunch of guys from the oems here in disguise all doing the same thing wandering around the show you know with fake glasses and mustaches on or something or (laughs) well you would hope they'd be smart enough to understand it and that it's been going on for years so i've been i've been watching it since it was at, Mm. at the beginning so i went to the first one show when it was super funky and super interesting and very portland and it's <clears throat> turned into something else uh, over the years when there'd be... There, but not necessarily in a bad way. No, it's just turned into something. It has been... It's evolved. ...commercialized a little bit, and you get the um, the people involved are very wise in how they have... I, I think it is wisdom. It's not just uh, happenstance that they're they're doing well with this. It's like we're 
we're thinking about how we're curating this and we're going to get um, OEMs involved and have BMW sponsor it and or have part of it a couple of years ago. And now we have having Harley Davidson realizing, oh, gosh, we're we're screwed if we don't get in on this, et cetera. And then you think about relative to what you were talking about just a, a couple minutes ago relative to what the, the OEMs have to do. And I, an example for me would be, and, and Jensen's going to have to remind me the exact model of the bike, but it's where they took the bolt and made a scrambler out of it, the, uh, the Yamaha. Oh, the Yamaha so like SCR950. A super reactionary, oh my God, we have to do something. Holy crap, what can we do? Throw the parts bin at it, put some knobby tires on it, whatever it is, get it to market quick, use an existing platform. Desperation, it seems. Like not a planned thing, but a, a, a very strange thing to see from them that comes out, unfortunately, it comes across as not very well developed and kind of, wow, somebody's going to want it and they're going to want the tuning forks on their scrambler like bike, but it's not, it's, it doesn't seem authentic at all. And it's really scary. So are, are they going to react to something like that in that way? Or is it going to be like Ducati who made the sport classics 10 years before their time, right? Yeah, like, and we had to give them away. And, and then, but yeah, in the beginning, there was the, I remember well, one I, day you I just said, want to note Michael's supreme smile over this because you were a big driving factor behind that model, weren't you? I was a, I was a big supporter yeah. of that that line and the thinking behind it. Yeah. Because I, I, I always try to look at the, um, the ever-moving marketplace. And the marketplace isn't what Honda are doing. If you're, if you're Ducati or even what Triumph are doing, the marketplace is what the customers are doing. Um, you know, a brand like Ducati is one that the customer interacts with. They don't just buy the bike and park it in the garage and ride it occasionally. They, they customize the bike. They, they, they make it something that they can brag about, that they're, that they're the owner of the bike, not just the guardian of it. And so at Ducati, I think we always felt some, uh, some compulsion to really reach out to the customers and quiz them and, and, and ask them what they wanted. And there was no doubt that there was a time coming for those sport classics. We just got the timing wrong. Mm. Um, not by much, but by enough that, um, that it gave us a few sleepless nights in 06 and 07. Um, I mean, I remember the, the first batch of the Paul Smarts that came. Paul Smart was a great looking bike. Really, really, really uncomfortable, quite frankly, <laughs> to ride. I think we all know <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, but, but beautiful. beautiful looking, beautiful looking, and not inauthentic or... In, I mean, it was genuinely done by the factory. They wanted to pay homage to that yeah. era of bikes, and I think they did a good job. First batch of the poor smarts come over, poof, out they go. So we think, wow, we're onto something here. So we order a second batch from the factory. Man, were we looking at those for a while? Yeah. And and okay, you fast forward now, and anybody puts a Paul Smart on eBay and twenty five grand, unbelievable, yeah. really impressive, yep. right? And I remember talking with you about this. Full disclosure, I you hired me at Ducati in two thousand and nine, and it wasn't long after we were having a very similar discussion. I'm like, what happened with the the Sport Classics? Because of course I was all about it, but not enough to where I'd buy one. And you said, and this is the first time I'd ever heard this. It was a very vocal minority an extremely vocal minority of people that are like, yes, mm. yes, we want that. Mm. And they were just loud and everybody, yep. and the noise of the, of the, the, of that overcame what was the sales or just, they, they got them and then they did, they let it the, sit. The Paul smart was a perfect example of something that does happen, um, uh, for OEMs, particularly niche ones like the Europeans. So I remember there would be dealers who would ring their area managers. You know, the area managers cover a territory, a few states and a, and a few dealers, and they build up a relationship with their dealer network. So 
we'd be having a, a sales meeting with all the area managers in at Ducati. Say, so what's going on out there? And the guy covering California would say, man, am I getting some calls for Paul Smarts? Oh, and then the guy who covers Pacific Northwest says, hey, I am too. And suddenly we think we've got a lot of demand for Paul Smarts. Yeah. Do you know what it is? It's one customer. It's one customer in Los Angeles ringing all the SoCal dealers to try and find a bike. Suddenly, there are 15 customers. Yeah. It's one dude. Yeah. And he rings a friend of his in Portland and says, are there any up there? And the friend says, I'll ring around the local dealers. Yeah. <laughs> now, okay, we should all be a bit smarter than that. And and you and you you learn from your experiences and and the motorcycle business is a kind of old wives club really i mean it really is everybody's you know rumor mongering and yeah. oh, did you hear that and did that happen everybody loves a bit of gossip yeah. and intrigue i make my profession on that fact right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. very well i may have yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> so so you know the upside is that there's there's all this kind of micro gaze put on everything and some really good things come out of that the downside is that you can get carried away with all your own crap um and i think with sport classics um they're a great example of uh of a vision at an oem level that no no one had gone to ducati and said you need to make some old looking bikes there was a vision within the company that hmm, we own this territory and uh and we should pay homage, and it's good for the brand today to tell everybody about the brand yesterday. All of that thinking went on, and you know, all the R and D went into the bikes, and they got put on the market, and uh, uh, and and you know, it was not a commercial success. In a, it re really wasn't. It could not be described as a commercial success. Um, and uh, but you know, the smile on my face is that you fast forward ten years, and yeah. here we are, twenty seventeen, and man, they're the most sought after bikes. Even the GT thousand. Oh, oh, I know yeah. the yeah. GT thousand. Yeah. I still have nightmares about that bike. I bet. Um, because no one wanted. They languished. They were pariahs on the floors. Yeah, they pariahs. were. They when were. I got the job, when you hired me, wasn't long after I'm going through the dealers, and there'd be. There'd be sport classics, the, the S models with the fairings, and the dealers just had that sullen look on their face. It was like ghost white because there was a lot of money just sitting there and had been sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. And I'm like, well, it's bitching. It looks good. I rode one. I was like, well, it's kind of cool. I'm not, it wasn't like in love, but yep. I was like, that's a good motorcycle. It took until whatever happened with the, like this one show style stuff, right? That and put it in a movie. I think it made it into Tron or something yep. like that. And that is surprising how something that simple, like one, large movie can start boiling with people like what's that that looks really pretty it's, and then it's actually it, not that surprising because it's been done so many yeah, times now which is why all the oems are very hardcore especially ducati and bmw just pushing to get things in eyeballs in that way yeah do you feel that the industry does a good job of that or a bad job um overall i think the industry does quite a good job on it some brands are more clued in than others and mm -hmm. some actually have some advantages you know, if your calling card is I'm running Ducati. Yeah, sure. Or Triumph. Or Harley Davidson. Or even Indian. You you really got a, you got a leg up on all the other guys. Yeah. I mean that because and I know this having done so many of these product placements. Sure. The first, I cut my teeth on the Triumph ones. Um when we brought the Triumph brand back to the US in um 94. Uh, and I, you know, I was pretty much fresh off the boat back in those days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was two suitcases and uh, you're going to be in Atlanta. And can you set a company up, find some dealers and sell some bikes? 
sure, yeah. How hard could that be? Um, <laughs> Piece of cake. But, but what I, but what I realised was that while this is the biggest single market in the world for motorcycles, the plus side, and while the American motorcycle buyer differs from the European uh, in one important respect, they buy lots of bikes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Europeans are, would feel ever so slightly embarrassed to have six bikes in the garage they'd yeah. feel pretty self-conscious yeah. the american just thinks he's getting started mm -hmm. so so in terms <laughs> of it being a big market and in terms of it being a market where customers want to buy lots of bikes you'd think hey it'd be easy what you learn really quickly if you're a european coming over here is that it's too damn big it's it's bigger than anything you've dealt with yeah that if you're if you're in atlanta you are halfway between london and los angeles <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Uh, and and if you wanted to drive out and see some dealers in la good luck with that so so the europeans come over and say oh my god it's it's huge and while all these customers out there how the hell do i get myself in front of them how do i get noticed sure the easy way would be to slap 50 million dollars down into a promo campaign yeah Oops, there yeah. aren't $50 million. So how do you get to all these people? I learned very quickly how you do it. You um, you take your your brand and your product outside of your industry and you put it into an industry that everybody's looking at, which is movies, TV, yeah. um, uh, product alliances with big brands. Yeah. You know, Go and speak to Oakley and get them to say something for you. That will be more effective than anything you could do. Go and speak to a big automotive brand you know, Audi or Mercedes and get them to smile and stand next to you. Uh, put your bike into a movie yeah. uh, that's going to be watched by 15 million people. You're never going to get to 15 million people in the bike world because there aren't 15 million people in the bike world. So so that's how you do it. And and the difficulty is, I remember this was the first product placement I ever did in the US was for barbed wire. Huh. Anyone remember Bob Wall? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, wow. Anderson. Oh, oh wow. my gosh. That was me, dude. Um, so, uh, so we, I managed to get, uh, I managed to get a meeting with the studio yeah. when they were pulling the movie together and they were looking for partners and, and so on. And I managed somehow through a PR guy that I knew got an intro to the studio to go and present Triumph's credentials to partner up for this movie. All I knew about the movie was that it was based on a comic yeah. book and that Pamela Anderson was probably going to be in it. Well, bear in mind, this was 1995. She was the most famous woman on the yeah. planet. Yeah, she was, she was hot. And I don't mean that in a physical way. She was, her, her, yeah. her street cred was hot. So no. I, get, I get in there to meet with the studio people and it's me and my PR guy and like 14 guys in suits on the other side of the table who were the producers and the and the legal counsel and the okay. product placement guys and so on and so we talked about the movie and they didn't tell us very much and they told us what they wanted in terms of bikes and so on and they said um at the end of the meeting they said uh, you know we're, we're talking to some other motorcycle companies right I, 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 I expected as much. Yeah, XYZ company has offered us all the product we need, plus $250,000 product placement fee. If you can match it, we'd be prepared to talk to you. you yeah, Triumph's kind of cool. That was mm -hmm. what they said. Mm -hmm. Quarter of a million dollars. I mean, <laughs> I hadn't even sold a bike yet in the US. Yeah. Um, so went back to the hotel room and 
had dinner with my PR guy and said, what, what the hell are we going to do here? Um, we're going to get muscled out by a big Japanese brand who would love to be in this movie and would, it would do great things for them. Um, but I need this movie. And my, my PR friend said, um, you got to sell them on who you are. Yeah. He said, you're the Brit yeah. from Triumph and you're in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. He said, you remind them. He said, invoke Steve McQueen. Yeah. Invoke Lee Marvin. Invoke Marlon Brando. Do all of that. Yeah. He said, that's what they'll respond to. We went back to the meeting the next day and I pulled out, you know, I laid all the cards on the table and, and basically um, said to them, this, this is about making your movie great that no one remembers an XYZ brand that Marlon Brando wrote because he didn't. He wrote a triumph. <laughs> and, you know, the wild ones <laughs> oh, and yeah. uh, the great sure. escape and yeah, the story sure, about yeah, sure. how it was really yeah. a triumph, not a BMW, because yeah. I, I pulled everything out that I had uh, to appeal to their sense of grandeur and history and, and, and uh, honoring Hollywood's traditions. Movie making, right? That's part of it. Yeah. That's the story. So uh, they didn't buy any of that. Oh, <laughs> I wish they had. Yeah. But, but did you, I, did but you make them, them any tea? I had them, <laughs> I had them on the hook enough that they said, okay, we're going to do um, some screen testing and we're going to be shooting some uh, promo uh, uh, footage and, and content for the posters and the, and, uh, the marketing materials. Can you get one of these bikes to a studio in Hollywood tomorrow? And we'll do some shooting with it and see what it looks like. Yeah, no problem. Of course, no problem. So I get out of the room, get on the call to our press center in Long Beach at the time. I said, have you got anything in there? No, no, we got nothing. No, no, I need a bike. I need a Thunderbird. <sighs> no, there are no Thunderbirds. Okay. Where are all the fleet Thunderbirds? Well, they're all out. Get one back. What, you mean take it back from a journalist early? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give him some, give him some excuse. Get it back. So we get a bike back and I said, I need to make this look mean. And you know, no disrespect to the first generation triumphs. They didn't look that mean. A little soft, yeah. They they were they were they were nice suburban bikes. Yeah. We needed to make it look like it could be in barbed wire. So we worked all night to lower the bike, to stretch the bike, and black out everything except the bright chrome triumph logos and some detailing. We worked literally overnight. And I had to ride the bike up to the studio the next day, and I had to get kitted out in, in some horrendous gear, you know, I, like <laughs> mm -hmm. Mad Max kind of gear, with mm -hmm. none of which I owned. Yep. Um, and I managed to find a Simpson Bandit. Um, and really? a black, yeah, no, no, I, all this yeah. on the day, because I knew that these guys respond to... The visual. The visual, yeah. yeah the image. presentation, yeah. So I had to ride the bike there, except the bike was completely unrideable by this yeah. time. We'd taken all the suspension travel out of it. It ground everywhere. It wouldn't really go around corners. Didn't, if you hit the brakes, odd things happened. Um, so I finally get, I get the bike to the studio, go in there. And it, of course, it's this great big white out studio Sounds and they're doing safe. all these static yeah. shots. And who's standing there but Pamela Anderson with a python around her neck. Right on. And she's barely wearing some black leather yeah. thing little very little thing and i pull up on the bike and the bike's a bit more interesting to all the people there than the yeah. fake gun and the python and everything so everybody comes around has a look at the bike i get off the bike try not to you know trip over and look like an idiot pamela anderson comes over looks at the bike she's chewing gum by now she looks at me she looks at the bike and she said uh she said i don't really like bikes Okay, it's a great opener. <laughs> she said, yeah, she said, I burnt my leg on the back of my husband's bike and, you know, I didn't have a good time. I didn't really like bikes. 
Anyway. So I got her sitting on the bike. She kind of liked this one because it weighed about half as much as any bike she'd ever been on before. Yeah. Uh, and it was low to the ground, so she could sit on it without feeling uncomfortable. So we have this chat about it. They shoot all the stuff with the bikes. I'm there, and we leave. I get a call from the studio, go back the next day for a final meeting with the studio, and they said, um, we'd like to offer you guys a contract. Um, uh, we understand you can't pay the product placement fee. How about for Barbed Wire 2, we do a pre-contract and you pay a product placement placement fee for that. I said, sure, yeah, no yeah. problem, because yeah. who knows what's going to happen down the pipe. We need the following bikes. Oh, and by the way, uh, the talent has asked that you teach her to ride the bike. No. <laughs> the talent. <laughs> now, okay, the, yeah. movie, the movie sucked. We know the movie sucked. Yeah. But the movie, it was big. It was entertainment. It was sizzle. And they wrecked all the bikes. They said they would, and they wrecked them all. Yeah. Um, that was a sizable investment for us. Um, but what I learned from it was that um, you can't be rational about motorcycles. You can't be even rational about selling motorcycles. Buy this bike because it's 0.03 faster than it was last year. No, none of us got into it for that. We get into it for escapism. We get into it to to get out of our normal, boring lives and do something exhilarating. So bikes have to be presented as exhilarating. And, and that's how, as a small brand, you do it, is that even if the movie sucks, it was still a fantasy movie. Yeah. Pamela Anderson was in it, and she blew stuff up yeah. and killed people and rode bikes extremely fast out of the, mo out of the back of moving trucks. Teaching it, her to yeah. do that was hard. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> The common thread that I keep hearing through your, your comments, Michael, it's this idea of the difficulty for manufacturers to not be conservative. I feel like motorcycling in general is a very conservative um, pursuit. We're very resistant to change. We, we're very vocal about it when we, when we hear change. Like you, you brought up the, the Luddites. Um, and I feel like that's that might be one of the things that that is holding back OEMs is is it's almost themselves they keep, they keep tripping over themselves and and the the bean counting and well we could make this really cool awesome new super bike but maybe we'll just update the same one we've been having for the last eight years and call it even and because that's safer it's a low margin business for OEMs yeah it's a low margin business for dealers. Yeah. Lower than most people yeah. would think. Sure. Yeah. Um, because you look at these super cool products, whether they be bikes or helmets or, you know, a pair of kangaroo skin gloves, everything's glamorous, everything's awesome. So you assume it's a high margin business. It's a really low margin business for everybody. So there is considerable risk attached. Um, and I think that fuels the conservatism on the supply side of the business is man, what are we going to F up if we do that? And I remember even at Ducati, which is a super creative company, and, you know, those guys in Bologna are a little wild, some of them, in a good way. They're the guys you want running the company. Mm -hmm. But even those guys, I remember having meetings about what was coming down the pipe two, three, four years from now. And at the market end, I wanted that. I wanted it to be as good as it could be. I wanted just to push the boundaries. And the boundaries weren't about making the, the next Ducati Superbike faster than the Honda. I mean, if it was, great. But that wasn't it. It was about, it was about making people's heart skip a beat. When they first saw that bike going, oh, yeah, wow, that could only be a Ducati. I need one of those. That was our job. And... And discussing that with the people in Italy, 
creative, aggressive, talented people in Italy. And then, and by the time they'd finished the project, man, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was the suburban version of what we're to- yeah. what we'd spoken about because risk, risk reward at manufacturing level, and can we design it? Yes. Can we build it? Yes. Can we build ten thousand of them? Don't know. <laughs> and what happens mm-hmm. if the ten thousand all go wrong because of that thing you pushed for in the marketplace? We got to haul them all back and recalls and customer dissatisfaction and dealers grinding their teeth and so. Behind the glamour and the escapism and the fantasy, there is actually a business, a really complex one. I mean, what is there, 1,800 components on a motorcycle? Easily. Yeah, right. maybe 2,000, maybe 2,500 on yeah. some. 2,500 different pieces that all need to fit together and work. And work not by the really super talented professional test rider at the factory. Yeah. This We're, is a big deal right uh, here. This, this is, is a, a note. Oh, this is huge. Getting to the end user that runs uh, the, the continuum is expert level to not. And that is the biggest for, for me from the <clears throat> intermediary standpoint, the person that would go to the dealers and then work with the OEM as a, as a service rep. Oh my gosh, that was the biggest, that was the biggest thing we had to deal with is sometimes the loose nut behind the bars was the, was the rider. And that was the most difficult thing to fix. Yeah. And it's still to this day, right? Yeah. You so, learn a lot dealing sure. with those guys. Sure. And actually some of it parlays into future product design. No doubt. Um, uh, I mean, I don't mean necessarily that you're designing to the lowest common denominator, no, no. but you but you learn the things, sure. uh, particularly in the first nine months after you've yep. released a bike. I remember when we when we launched the 1098 series, yep. which was the most eagerly awaited Ducati since the 916, I think. Um, and we launched that bike because it was coming on the back of the of the triple nine series, um, which didn't perform in the marketplace the way everybody wanted and. Well, you know, w- w- was uh, was not generally well thought of compared to what it replaced. So the 1098 comes along, and man, everybody needs to have one, and everybody's excited about it. It's the first crossover Ducati Superbike ever. By crossover, I mean someone who had an R1 yep. wanted it yep. and thought they could get it. Yeah. And we opened ourselves up to a uh, uh, to a cross section of customers we'd never dealt with before, because the guy who bought an R1. A new one each year because they were cheap, and he trashed it. And and yep. Yamaha Yamaha build beautiful bikes, and the warranty department is up to speed. That guy's used to that experience. Yep. So he goes from his eleven thousand dollar R one to his sixteen thousand dollar ten ninety eight, and whew, it's close enough. But man, he's expecting fifty or sixty percent better customer service, and he's come to the small company that's used to dealing with the same customers year in year out who do all their little prep routines and look after their bikes and put them away, yep. put them away warm and dry. And and suddenly we've got the mass market customer buying the 1098 and, and the, we wanted him. And the expectations are completely different. Oh, we learned so much that year, that first year of the that Superbike family. We felt we grew up as a bit of a company then that we'd gone from selling to our next door neighbor who would lived you know, next yeah. door to for our whole lives to suddenly selling to the guy across town who we knew nothing about. And so there is some conservatism. Ironically, if you're trying to do something new to get a new customer, there's almost a little voice in your head saying you need to be ultra conservative about this because you're stepping into the unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I certainly have strong memories of that time with the with the with that Superbike family um, because the goal 
that was agreed at the factory level. That, that really, the, the, the goal that we'd suggested from North America on how to transform our brand and turn it into one that America knew and trusted and desired um, was that superbike. That was the that was the Trojan horse. Um, what we hadn't accounted for quite so much was um, what happened when we achieved the goal. <laughs> Brave new world that was. Yeah, sure. And I, and so I think every every OEM uh, feels that you know that if you if you asked the product planning or the senior executives of most. OEMs in the US, if they would like a piece of Harley's market, they'd all say yes. Harley has 54% market share. Of course they would. Yeah. There's Harley and then there's the motorcycle business. So everybody would like a piece of Harley's business. Uh, and they're all circling around it and have been for a few years. But you're not, you're not just um, uh, creating a situation where you put your product in that Harley customer's garage. You're now, you now have a relationship with that guy. And that guy may only have bought Harley's. For 20, 30, 40, 50 years, he's gotten comfortable with them. They've gotten comfortable with him. And now suddenly there's a, oh, there's a Diavel in the garage or there's a BMW or there's some kind of scrambler in the garage because the guy feels, oh, yeah, why not? It's not just about market share and numbers. It's about relationships because um, any of us who worked in the bike business for any period of time know and I now know even more, having gone to the automotive business and come back, is that the uh, relationship between uh, brand and customer in, in motorcycles is fundamentally different. Yeah. Fundamentally different to what it is uh, in the auto business. E I even found that a Lamborghini. Yeah, that surprises me that it would be that. No, I, e Even Lamborghini. I even take it a step, a step further out. When I look at like brands that are really successful on being a premium brand through the service that they're providing their customer beyond what that customer is showing up for if it's a product or if it's or what, what have you but like like, like uh, department stores like harrods or like hotels like the ritz carlton that are hyper focused on the customer experience and understanding what their customer is there for and catering to their needs before they even arise mm. and you don't even see that really in the the motorcycle space at all like i think brands do it to varying degrees but i think there's room for improvement across the board and yeah. how we no they're reactionary man it's all reactionary. yeah but like right? how they handle recalls how they handle mm. you know just warranty issues or how they handle just dealer experience and and all those things that, that go that down that is the, different between the bike business and the uh car business yeah i did learn at the time i was at lamborghini that um even though I was saying earlier that the nature of the relationship is different, um, that that the, and, and I believe that. But set against that, a brand like Lamborghini, even though it's very small and niche, does plan its business in a way that no motorcycle brand I've had any experience of does. So, in the run up to a new product coming to market, you know, a new car, maybe the Huracan or a new version of the Aventador. Lamborghini's already thinking about who the customers are and what they want um, and how to cater for that and how to put systems and, and process in place in order to achieve that. No motorcycle company I've ever worked for did that. <laughs> um, but when you get to the fact that, that there is a customer who wants to buy that product and start having a relationship with that car or that bike, that's when it changes. That um, Motorcycle customers, I think, and I'm generalizing here, but Motorcycle customers feel that when they buy your bike, particularly if they're buying a, an evocative brand, 
um, that they own you. I, and I think reasonably they feel this. Somebody buys a new Ducati and they feel that they own a piece of you now, uh, <laughs> if you're the brand. Um, yeah. And they invest time to educate themselves about that brand and about that bike. And they're on the forums. They're chatting to other people with experiences. And they feel this is an investment in their relationship with you, the brand. Um, and, it's a, it, 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 um, and, they, and, they, and they're upset about things. The car customer gets upset. The Lamborghini customer gets upset if something breaks on his car. Yeah. But the but the Ducati customer or the BMW or the Harley customer get upset about a whole load more things. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it's more like a family relationship than a transactional one, I think. Um it felt more transactional in the car business and and a higher proportion of the customers that I met at Lamborghini um had purchased that car because of what it said about them. Hmm. Now, a proportion of motorcycle customers do yeah, that, but it's sure. much lower, much, much really? lower. Really? Okay. Yeah. Most people buy a bike because they want to ride it and own it. <laughs> they want to have a relationship. Yeah. They want to have a relationship with that bike and that brand. I found much more so at the super premium end of the car business that it's a trophy. Yeah. A minority of guys buying a Lamborghini drive them, yeah. really drive them. Otherwise, it's, I have this. I've done the things which have gotten me this thing. Now this is my see, reward. Yeah. Yeah. Line, yeah. And and I and I see a lot less of that in the bike business. Well, there's some of it, but really a lot less. Most guys, and it's still mostly guys, most guys research the bike, find out everything about it, go and kick tires at the dealership, get to know where do they like this dealership? Are these guys they can talk to? Are they going to be able to go back once they got the bike and have a cup of coffee with them and and be welcomed? All those things are very important. Not so much in the car business, no, firstly because they don't drive them very much, um, and and their interaction with the dealership post purchase is only if something really goes wrong, sure. which it doesn't, <laughs> because they don't drive them, right? They don't drive yeah. them, and even if they did, they're so well engineered, and I mean they're amazingly it's a engineered. Thing. Yeah. They don't they don't really go wrong. It's not it's not like the Countach anymore. Yeah, sure, but there's that part of like going back to having a visceral uh, experience with a vehicle. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Would I rather la be in a Countach than a an Aventador by a long shot? Right. Cause that was the one on my wall. Yeah. That was the one I drew literally hundreds of times yeah. as a kid. Right. I want that. I don't care if my feet are pointed almost 45 degrees into the firewall and the clutch is hard and I have to open the door, the scissor door and sit on the ledge and, and ba <laughs> to back it up and et cetera, et cetera. I want to feel what that sound is like in that cockpit with that strange trapezoid window. I want to know. Whereas the Aventador, you just know is just going to be triple throwdown wicked. No doubt. The, it's not going to be yeah, the same thing. The Aventador, uh, and I can speak to that because I've, I've driven them a fair Bastard. number of times. I got to ride uh, around one in Masano, and that was life-changing. It's, it's a spectacular product. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it does turn you into a superhero. Yeah. It actually does. You pays you money, and now you're a superhero. Yeah. And I remember driving an Aventador um, through um, Vermont and upstate New York a few years ago, where we did um, we did a tour. So we'd basically invite customers from all over the U.S., and we would curate the tour. So it would be a driving mm -hmm. tour with awesome hotel, followed by awesome restaurant, followed by awesome road, yep. and 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 repeat. For five days it was a great part of the job 
and the customers would be invited through the dealerships, um, and they would ship their car. Hmm. And of course. You know, like they were two couples from San Diego. They fancied doing upstate New York in the fall with the leaves turning. And why not? Sure. So they shipped their cars uh, to arrive at the dealership in Boston. Everybody's car started in Boston. We drove out of Boston, and then we had five days. I, I got to drive. Man, I remember that car. It was a white Aventador. This was second year they were out, so it was, it was, the, uh, it was the, ba- the base model. Mm-hmm. $477,000 MSRP uh, until you start specking sure, stuff in course. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember <laughs> driving that car for two days and we had come to a understanding with the local constabulary. You send up the advance party to go and have a chat with the cops because the last thing the cops want to do is A, see all these cars whizzing through their countryside. They didn't know about it. And B, start getting calls from yeah. people. So you go and lay, you know, go and lay the relationship uh, open with the cops, and we did that. And uh, so we had a little bit of blind eyeing going on. Um, <laughs> Does that involve like, like a, like you bring them a cake, and there's some money in, in the back of the cake box? <laughs> how, do, how do you, how do you, what's the acceptable way of greasing that palm? I have no idea. I wasn't the one doing it. <laughs> <laughs> we had, we had a specialist team. Oh yeah, okay. a kind of black ops team. To go in and, and yeah. prepare the ground. But the, the point of this is I remember driving that car. Sure. And you get over the intimidation of this uh, cockpit and the noise and the money quite quickly. Yeah. Because it's so easy to drive fast. So you drive it faster and faster and faster. And you think, man, this is like, it's like a really, really powerful Honda Civic. And... But there's a voice in the back of your head saying, no, there's something wrong with that picture. It's mm-hmm. not a really powerful Honda Civic. Yeah, you're not pushing it. <laughs> so then yeah. you think, okay, yeah, let's sure. just change the driving mode. That would be an easy way to push it, right? So you, 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 you change the driving mode from Strada to, to Sport. You know, and it raves the, raises the rev ceiling, uh, yeah, which sure. bit changes gear, stiffens up the suspension. You feel like you're really living at this point, but you're not. You're still driving it like the Honda Civic. Yeah. It's just making slightly more noise. Then you switch it to Corsa mode, at which point it turns into the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> and, and it's worse to drive slowly. Yeah, you have sure. to drive it faster. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it will break your back and knock all the fillings out of your teeth. Um, and I remember driving that car um, through some switchbacks. Uh, near uh, there was a series of lakes i can't get any more specific than this mm-hmm. there was a series of lakes and this switchback beautiful road and all these leaves were yeah. uh, f- falling and turning so that it send up ah oh, that was gorgeous oh yeah yeah and there was a there was a couple of guys in a car behind me and they were supposed to be filming us going through this and i just got into the zone with this car and I don't remember what happened next. I just remember driving it, feeling awesome, and then stopping at the next stop. And the, the these guys in the car behind pull in, and they said, "Man, what got into you? We couldn't keep up. We we didn't do any filming for the last hour. You just went." And you think, "Yeah, that's 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 what you want. Yeah. You want the car to be awe inspiring." And and I remember I remember the gear changes and think, "Oh my god, eight and a half thousand RPM." In this car, yeah, that is eight and a half thousand RPM in a four-liter, five-liter engine, something like a lot of moving parts. A V12 with a lot. It's not just eight thousand RPM 
on a Honda single, right? That's yeah. an amazing cacophony of sound. It's several liters larger than that. Is it? Actually. Is it yeah. eight liters? It's really? Seven, seven liters. Oh my God. Wow. So I can just fathom. And that's the type of thing, though. Your story, talking, telling this now, it, I don't say we're missing it in the motorcycle realm, but it gives me chills to talk about it. But that's what I want people to be able to experience when they get on any manner of bike, right? Yeah. I, I got on a BMW. Uh, whatever the, the S1000RR and a, and a Panigale, and they're both equally good, but I just had more uh, passion for the Ducati because it, do, it did the things a little bit off, like you were talking about earlier. It makes you feel a little bit more alive when it doesn't... Some quirk. There's some sure. quirk, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And if it's if it's so good that it, that it just feels robotic, then that's a problem. Uh, both of us are fans of Honda RC30s. That's just when Honda made bikes that were very enthusiast-driven. And those bikes had some serious quirks, but holy crap, did they work well. They were almost the perfect blend. It's still the best motorcycle I've ever by, ridden. By a long shot, right? And nobody, it's hard to be, it's, it sounds like hyperbole, but mm. for me, it's a top three bike for sure. Like, I don't know what my top three are. Yeah. I just know an RC30 is in it, right? Uh, totally. But because yeah. it, it evokes that, that feeling, whether it be its sound, so you have to have the oral, you have to have the vibes, you have to have the, the feel of the bike, the lightweight, like all the things that are going mm. on. And we're not necessarily seeing that. We're just seeing like They're, computerized stuff. You're, you're, you're dead right on that, though. When you start up an RC30, oh yeah, yeah, it's a whole. It's almost a fetish. It's gnarly. <laughs> yeah, you can't explain that, that it. sound when it's yeah. cold yeah. and it's warming up. That kind of. I don't want this to come across that slight tinny. Yeah, sure. Until the gear drives warm up and start feeling, right? If, yeah. Especially if one has flat slide carbs that are chicka, chicka, chicka. Yeah. Until all that comes in the tune, it's sort of like, uh, is it going to be okay, right? I and mean, that's what you get with Ducatis, right? That's with what you get clutch. with a, a lot, right. And, that, and that's a part of things that have softened over the years. Yeah. So motorcycles have lost that a bit. There's a reason why I still have my ST2. I mm. love you riding Multistratas. Oh, yeah. I love riding Multistratas. But I want to get that back going eventually because it gives me that those mm. sensations. And I, so I want to see other motorcyclists get to. <clears throat> and I know there's products out here that, that can do that, whether it be from Yamaha or Honda or Suzuki or whatever. I know that's out there. It's just it has become a little bit deadened. And it's interesting to talk about because I've never really thought about it being that extreme. But even hearing a story about, say, uh, say the most extreme car, one of the most extreme cars that you can – and the privilege to be able to even hear the story, let alone experience it for you, that's an amazing thing. And I, I, I think you can get that with a $15,000 motorcycle. The problem is that you could buy a five-year-old $10,000 or $5,000 bike and get that as the problem I think the, the industry is seeing now. Because I, I can go buy 1098, 2009, uh, maybe an 1198, which probably be what I do. I have my A48 for a reason. I don't, right? And I keep saying this. I probably said it on the podcast multiple times. I feel like a broken record, but I don't need any more than that. It, yeah. It's I can get on that bike and get super hyped right off the bat. In fact, I'm, I'm hyped thinking about it now. That right? is a lot of motorcycle, actually. For sure. Yeah. And and that's what we need to get back to the point where the people aren't playing video games. They are buying these bikes. Yeah. I. But I think there's there's more to tackling that issue than what sounds obvious. So um, what do I mean by that? Um, I think that in society as a whole, and we feel it very uh, tangibly in the bike business because of because of the nature of bike business, but in society as a whole, no one actually wants to die anymore. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's an extreme statement. Like, what that implies that people are like, yeah, I want to die. Well, what do you mean? Okay. Uh, This is going to, you know, make me sound like an old fart. But I remember as a teenager getting into motorcycling, my first bike was a Yamaha FS1E. Now, you guys might not know what that is. Yeah, we didn't have step licensing, right? Okay. (laughs) So it was a 50cc, 50cc air-cooled two-stroke single. And the engine went into a million mopeds and scooters. But the FS1E was the Kenny Roberts replica. <laughs> now, it didn't have a fairing, yeah. but it had clip-on bars. It had the uh, the long gas tank with the Yamaha yeah. stripe, the, the Chevron. Yeah. Yep. And it had a um, like a coffin seat. It was a, it was a mini cafe racer. Now, okay, it did 44 miles an hour. <laughs> but me... And all my friends from the age of 14 onwards were already working out which bike and which brand we'd have. Mm. There were the fizzy guys, FS1E, yeah. fizzies. Obviously, that was the cool one. Obviously. There was, a, yeah, there was a Suzuki called the AP50, but it was a Suzuki. Not many, <laughs> not many people had one of those. <laughs> hey, this is from the era of the GSs, I'm telling you. Right. Yeah. Um, and there was, there was the Honda, the Honda SS50. It was a four-stroke. Yeah. Obviously, no one yeah, was buying yeah, that, right? Sure, sure. And so on and so on and so on. So we, I don't know how many kids in my high school got 50s on their 16th birthday, but quite a few. I mean, there was like 20 or 30 of us at school who all had these. Well, some guys shouldn't have had them. Sure. And all of us should have had much better training than we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's but, a good thing you all had to start on 50s, right? At least. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. So, so we're all bombing around town on these things. We're teenagers. We're learning how to become human beings. At the same time as we're having to wield these um, powered two-wheelers with not-so-awesome brakes and tires and mm-hmm. suspension, thank God they didn't go that fast. But we all went into it, and it's kind of unsaid and unwritten that some people were going to get hurt. I mean, you knew yeah. that some, there was nine of you who all had these bikes. Someone was going to get hurt, yeah. right? It wasn't going to be me. Of course not. Right? Sure. But somebody did get hurt. One of the guys in our group got killed. Not when he was 16, when he was 17. Mm. Um, And everybody had stupid accidents. And we all did. I remember riding to a New Year's Eve party. I mean, it's already bad, right? Yeah. To the New Year's Eve party with a great big military-style coat on. Over my leather jacket, it was really that cold. It was England, New Year's yeah. Eve, writing. And on the <clears> inside <throat> pocket, on the inside pockets of the of the coat, I had two bottles in there. I mean, none of this can go wrong, can it, on any mm. level. Riding to a party that I didn't really know where it was, wearing a, a great big duffel coat over my bike stuff, so I wasn't comfortable, with two great big bottles in there. And coming to the end of this street and having to take a right turn and just dabbing the front brake and the bike just went black ice. So the bike went one way and ended up embedding itself in the side of a parked car. Mm. And I slid down the road on this ice, hoping against hope that neither of the, the bottles, bottles burst. Break, yeah. I mean, how the stupid. First thing I was thinking. It's yeah. about as stupid as you could be. I'm still here. Yeah. What about the bottles? But other, peop- <laughs> but other people aren't. And I think that, you know, through the, through the golden years of, of bike sales and, and, and mass um, 
a participation. Um, they weren't that safe. The training wasn't good. The product wasn't that good. People were stupid. Um, and, and, and it's an industry where people got hurt. People still do get hurt. Yeah, but, yeah. But a lot of people used to get hurt. A lot of people used to get hurt. You think it's more? Do you think it's I safer? I don't know the data. I know that people who don't ride for 20 years and then come back and get themselves yeah. a 1,000cc bike really need, yeah. really need some hand-holding. And I don't know that there's a lot of that hand-holding going on. So maybe the accident rates have, have spiked. But I know that when I was a kid that lots of kids rode bikes and we were all harem scarum. And the speed limits were not policed like they are now. I mean, all over Europe, there are cameras now. You can't escape the damn things. It does It does have a suppressing effect on some of the things you do. Yeah. I remember riding from London to Bristol. I had a, a brother who lived in Bristol. And from where I lived in London to uh, where his house was, 110 miles. 108 of it was motorway, freeway, the M4. I lived a mile from the M4. He lived a mile off the M4. We we used to we used to have a little competition. I bet. See who could do it quickest. I bet. He once did it in fifty two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> On what? Like what bike would that be? CBX five fifty Honda. Nice. <laughs> the thing was pinned. I bet. Yeah. The whole way. <laughs> I bet. Okay. You can't do that now. Yeah. I'm not sure you should be able to do that now. But 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 it was it was the Wild West relative to now. But society was the Wild West. Yeah. I read a story in, in, uh, in a newspaper. I, I was over in Europe just before Christmas, and I get all the papers on the plane on the way back. I read a story, and the story was that um, there was this guy, a special needs guy in England, who died drowning in a pond in a park. Because he'd waded into the pond to play with the ducks. He was, you know, he was a special yeah. needs guy. Anyway, someone called the cops who called the fire brigade. The fire brigade came out and they all stood on the outside of the pond watching him drown because they didn't have the right boots. What? They had to have certain boots to wade into water. This was part of their health and safety. Oh, okay. So it was like regulatory. It was like a bureaucracy problem, not like... But 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 really, it's not a bureaucracy problem. It's a heart problem because if you can't, don't have the heart to jump in, no matter what fucking boots you've got in, like right? I, mean, I think I think we're losing sight of some things. <laughs> I think in an attempt to be more efficient and yeah. to be more bureaucratically correct and yeah. and and more controlled and and have more process, all the things we say all the time we need. I think you can lose sight of things, and and I think that society as a whole is uh, is is desperate to be clean safe hermetically sealed um you ever watch any of the uh the cooking shows on tv this is a good example so um so they have these cooking shows on tv you know competitions you know where chefs have to make stuff if anyone ever finds a hair on a plate it's like the bubonic plague broke out <laughs> yeah what 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 happened Okay, a hair fell in the foot. That's not good. It doesn't exactly sure. make you want to eat the dinner. But no one's going to get hurt. But they all... <gasps> and, and so I think I think generally no one wants to die. No one wants to get hurt. No one wants to get old. Everybody's angry if uh, they're not fixed. You know, the do it's the doctor's fault. I think we've moved in that direction. How does it affect the motorcycle business? Man, it does. Yeah. Because we've got a product that falls over all by itself. 
Especially the kickstand. Unless we stop it falling over. (laughs) Gotta have kickstand, yeah. Well, so that was, I, it's a very clear segue for me into flat track, Mm. right? Which is straight up in the motorcycle industry still, from my view, Wild West. There's like extreme forms of trials, which I see as like, oh my gosh, dangerous, right? And not not as much as like the Enduros. They're extreme, like obvious tests of of mind and body, but I don't see the like clear and present danger. It's a little, I, it's a little slower speed. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. Little, it's down to the ground. No, I see yeah. the clear and present danger as a person that has raced, that, that has put a Panigale on a dirt track, right? I've done this. I know what it feels like. It's dangerous as hell. It's an impressive thing. Boy, does that make you feel alive, right? So that's my question for you. Is, is this is this kind of what you're into? Are you now seeing this clearly? Uh, being the the are you you are the CEO of American Flat Track, yes, of AMA Pro Flat Track. I'm the CEO of AMA Pro Racing, Total. which runs uh, the American Flat Track series. All right, and what else? Uh, professional hill climb. Yep. And we license out uh, all of the other. Uh, disciplines. So, so Feld Supercross, is Feld. Motocross. Uh, yeah, uh, Feld is Supercross, and obviously the Coombs uh, family is uh, is motocross. motocross. Okay, those are out on license. Okay. Um, Sorry, I just wanted to make sure that was clear because mm. I wasn't exactly clear. So yeah. within the flat track community, uh, you you now have to you've been able. To, how long have you been doing this? How long have you been in? Uh, just over a year uh, working in house at uh, AMA Pro in Florida and for about nine months before that working as a consultant to Jim France. Um, uh, and Jim France, who, explain who Jim France is because that's a Jim thing. Jim France. Uh, Jim France is um, the major investor in AMA Pro Racing uh, and also the chairman of NASCAR Group. Yep. Uh, and the son of the founder of NASCAR, um, Bill France Sr. And the brother of Bill France Jr., who was uh, the second um, uh, CEO. So Jim is a um, Jim's really a benefactor for the sport. Um, uh, fl- flat track is something that he loves. It's something he did when he was a younger man at amateur level. Yeah. In fact, right outside my office, uh, in uh, up on a pedestal, is one of Jim's Bultacos um, from the seventies. Super cool bike. Talk about going back to basics. Sure. And, yeah. Um, so I worked as a consultant for Jim for mm, eight, nine months, looking at his motorcycle uh, portfolio and uh, and trying to give him some advice as to uh, where I thought he might want to develop it for the future to make it successful and sustainable. And, and we um, homed in on flat track as being uh, a sport we felt had extraordinary potential to grow on the basis of a number of things. One, that it was the original American motorcycle sport. Yeah. So all these other uh, disciplines I'm talking about are all international, they're all imported. Pro flat track is an American invention, uh, raced on American machines by American riders at American tracks. And I felt that there was something uh, in that story that we could develop that would capture people's imagination. Little did I know that America was gonna get so great again um and and that this would fit in actually with a general yeah. narrative about celebrating american values and uh and and so on mm-hmm. um but we felt that the flat track was scalable um partly because of its lineage and heritage but partly because it used to be big 
Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that the reasons that it went into recession were partly the split into road racing and flat track. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to the 70s, uh, Kenny Roberts was a, a yeah. grand national champion for flat track and ended up being really the catalyst for a couple of decades of American dominance in road racing. Absolutely. Kenny was the man. Sure. He took America onto the world stage and he yanked a whole bunch of guys with him. Eddie Lawson and Wayne Rainey. Freddie Spencer, Kevin Schwantz, all of that. And it was yeah. the glory days, the it, halcyon days of American road racing. Where absolutely that, Especially was. ending in the early 90s. It was, but it was amazing well, think, when it broke. I it, think partly right. the, 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 the force of personality of Kenny Roberts. Yeah, sure. Um, partly that, that uh, dirt track racers in the U.S., learned a series of skills, particularly in cornering and throttle control, that Europeans were not learning on road race bikes. Yeah. They didn't have to. Sure. And if you look at if you look at um why Kenny went on to be so successful, and I think also particularly Freddie after him, was skills they'd um they'd honed. Backing the bike in, being able to be very sophisticated in use of the throttle because you're not relying on the brakes uh, to, to to yank you around the corner, and I think they got a they got a jump on the Europeans. There's no doubt. I remember being a kid at Donington Park at Coppice Corner watching Freddie Spencer come around. The first time I'd ever seen Freddie Spencer race, and Coppice Corner is one of the slowest corners at Donington Park, and you could really watch the action, which is why I was there, and. And the first lap he came around that I was watching him, I saw something and I thought, that's strange. I'm going to watch out for that second lap. And he did it the second lap and the third lap and the fourth lap. I had never seen anybody be able to get smoke off a front tire on a road race bike. I've never seen it. <laughs> and he did it every lap. Yeah. These guys were giant. Um, but the irony is that the huge success that they created and the profile for America in motorcycle sport was at the cost to flat track yeah because because they went onto the onto the uh, grand prix circuit which became very international and big money in it why would you race domestically on dirt ovals um uh, for much for much less reward and much less profile when you could go on to national so at, at arguably higher risk right yeah, I don't know. You want to go back and look at those Grand Prix bikes of the no, 70s. No, good point. Yeah, good point. No, that's a very good point. You're right. I remember you think of Kevin Schwantz and perennially yeah. being a broken person because no. of how nasty those bikes were, for sure. You're right at that yeah. time. I think the 70s was an era when, you know, men were men and motorcycle machines were scary. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but the cost to pro flat track was that the talent and the attention and therefore the money all went to road racing and and flat track just gradually spiraled downwards it wasn't as if it didn't have its heroes i mean there was sure. scotty parker and bubba Schobert and uh, and, and jay springsteen uh, Car, again yeah. giants giants yeah, absolutely. but but the walls were closing in and the walls really did close in uh, to the point where you know until quite recently the crowds had dwindled and and the demographic had got older every single motorcycle manufacturer had abandoned the sport except for harley and harley were just hanging in there really i think they felt an obligation they were obligated to yeah sure. they were obligated to rather than feeling any real enthusiasm for it i don't think they'd criticize me for saying that um and but but i felt that 
um, we're at a pivotal moment in the bike business. You know, what we've been talking about here today about trends in, in, in uh, different types of bikes and different types of customers. And um, the millennial generation like to tinker with bikes and they have this respect for, uh, for, for heritage engineering and, and simpler motorcycles. I saw all of that and I saw flat track. I saw that flat track, you know, I look at a flat track race bike, like an XR 750 yep. Harley Davidson. And I look at the kind of stuff I'm going to see at the show mm-hmm. today. Yeah. And I see a link. Sure. I see, I see DNA in there. Absolutely. And I thought, hmm, okay. So it's a very American sport. Um, the market trend, I mean, the market's all over the place and upside down, but this trend is strong. Um, it's attracting a younger demographic who don't know flat track at all. I can speak to them about flat track. I can tell them a great story. Um, the racing is close because if you like the great big leveler in pro flat track, it's the tires. There is a limit to how fast or how far you can go on those tires until either you or, or, or the bike gives up on it. So it ensures close racing. Um, you you can't win by by stuffing more horsepower down the pipe. You can't. In fact, you start. It, going it actually backwards. goes to detriment a lot it, of times. It does indeed. Well, burn what you your tire need up, is, or you don't get traction. Right? You need usable torque, and you need to be able to nurse your tires, particularly on the on the mile circuits and the abrasive surface miles. Like you need to nurse the tires. So it's a it's more of a chess match, which means a much closer race. So I thought, hmm, close racing. I know how, and I've observed how people get switched off looking at supercross or road racing when someone's half a lap ahead of the field yeah sure only only the purists are still watching yeah, yeah. this mm-hmm. well the purists don't mm-hmm. pay the bills so i thought <laughs> no i think that's a great that's point to bring up because really i point. think we get stuck in the the motorcycle racing echo chamber with that where i have a lot of colleagues on the racing side that are that are purists and they'll see a race like i think philip island's a great example where they had the tire issue with the uh, the tires not being able to go the full range distance, so we had to do a mandatory mm-hmm. pit stop, and you would have thought the world was coming to an end. And I'm sitting there going, like, yeah. this is the most entertaining thing yeah. I've ever seen. I'm seeing ten bikes get, you know, change in order all because of this yeah. the silliness that's, that's well, going on. Every now and then we need to remind ourselves that we are an entertainment business. Motorcycle yeah. sport is an entertainment business. Yeah. The OEMs and the sponsors are only in there to entertain people in order to get them to watch more and to take message away from what works and what doesn't work. And so, so close racing, uh, an American brand of racing, um, Harley Davidson, which is a door opener to America. You mm-hmm. say Harley Davidson, suddenly people listen. Um, and the fact that you can sit in the grandstand and you can watch the whole race. Yeah. That's huge. Led, That's huge. You don't have to sit in front of a TV, see a couple turns live in person, and then right. watch the rest of the race on the TV. So I saw all these raw ingredients and felt that we could do something with it. So pitched Mr. France, who loved it, and said, okay, let's see if we can build this. What investments are going to take and so on. And halfway through the, the process of planning all that out, we got a windfall. And the windfall was Polaris Industries saying... We're going to take our Indian brand, pro flat track racing, to take on (laughs) Harley-Davidson. When they said that, it changed everything for me. Because now we had a new narrative. Two two $6 billion companies 
in the heartland of America in adjoining states that don't like each other very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is Polaris a $6 billion company? Seriously? Yeah. I yeah. had no idea. That's amazing. All so right. suddenly the narrative changed out of all proportion because now it wasn't just me selling American racing and Harley Davidson to America. It was now selling a new American Civil War on the racetrack <laughs> between two brands that can't yeah. compete anywhere else. Yeah. They've both got fully exclusive motorcycle dealership chains. Yeah. There's no Indians in Harley dealers no. or vice versa. The only way these two brands could duke it out with each other was in my race series. So that really accelerated the whole the whole plan. And um, and we've done some minor things and some major things. Some minor things are putting great big high-definition jumbotrons in front of the grandstand so that we can actually speak to the audience in the grandstand yeah. and tell them what's going on. Because um, even though you might be able to see it, it does help to have a bit of an air dot instead yeah. of a yeah. oh and yeah. some context yeah so so that's a little thing putting a jumbotron in all the races and other little things we've changed the race format of the evening um, so it's now a tournament style knockout meaning you have um, untimed practice and you have timed practice in qualifying as you always did which sets grid positions for the heat races. But in the heat races, some people go home and some people progress. And you might think, well, isn't that how it always was? No, no, that isn't how it always was. How it was was you had the heat races. And the first four yeah. from each heat race went to go and sit under the easy up all evening and just do the main event. They, they were the guys you actually went to go and see. Yeah, sure. And then everybody else raced seemingly endlessly against each other in race after race after race. And you, there's, that guy, there's the guy who was half a lap behind everybody. You remember him first heat race? He, he comes out and races again and again. Yeah. Until you eventually get a full... So we turned it on its head and said... No, you got to, you, um, uh, you progress from your heat race, uh, and then you go to two semifinals. And the semifinals are 18 rider fields. Nine go through to the main event, nine go home. So there's a sense of drama. Yeah. And that the good guys, the factory riders and the Jared Mees and the Brian Smiths of this world, have to race to win the evening. And that means they have to race to win the championship. So we can build a big story round by round by round drama we need drama i need i need drama around who's on top this week i don't need drama around who's in the hospital this week i need drama around the racing um so we changed the race format we got um into a discussion with a number of broadcasters because like my story about the product placement for oems in movies of taking motorcycling to america it's just the same in motorsport i need to be on tv mm -hmm. and i don't mean I don't mean Mickey Mouse TV. Yeah. I don't mean TV that has 180,000 subscribers. Absolutely. That's not TV. That's that that might as well be web broadcast. Yeah, it's like YouTube. You need to be on a recognizable channel that people are accidentally going to watch your yeah. race. Yeah. Flipping through the channels. Oh, right. that looks interesting. Right. I'll, I'll give that a watch. So we started speaking with um who I consider to be the three expert broadcasters, which were ESPN, Fox Sports and NBC. And NBC showed this huge enthusiasm for the sport. I mean, it helped that one of the guys we were talking to, you know, at the end of the at the end of the meeting, pulls out his phone, and goes, "This is this, you know, this is my bike." You always know. <laughs> yeah, that, you're good. You always That's know. The guy that, you're always looking yeah. for, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's <Yeah. laughs> exactly. But NBC had picked up a number of sports over the last couple of years and has really elevated them. They they grow sports. I love the idea of that. So 
we end up doing a deal with NBC. So we're on NBC SN, their sports network. Um, but it reaches 90 million homes. And that's that, something that's in that would be in a basic cable package. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, so 90 million homes means I'm reaching America. Enough of America. Um, and when they said, hmm, here's what we plan to do. How about we put your racing in... Uh, a regular motorsports block on a Thursday evening. So there'll be five hours of motorsports every Thursday evening of which you'll be one hour. It's like heaven sent for me because I don't know what the other ones are, but I know people will be tuning in for yeah, them sure. and will accidentally see my racing. And I know my racing will be the best racing all evening. I'm pretty sure of that. You have to be sure of that, right? <laughs> um, so the TV thing was huge and NBC loved the Indian versus Harley. Of course they did. Um, everybody loves Indian versus Harley. Even people who don't know that Indian have been dormant for sixty yeah. years. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Um, so, so we're building Pro Flat Track, um, and the door opener of Indian versus Harley, the door opener of the TV deal, um, the door opener of um, uh, Triumph getting involved at a factory level this year. Oh yeah. Um, hmm. uh, another brand, another brand I used to work for, that's a red one from Italy, mm -hmm. are going to be involved with a modern generation water called uh, race bike this year oh, in yeah? Pro Flat Track. Really? Through a third party team. Yep. Good to hear. With here first. With 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 the blessing of uh, Bologna. No kidding. Well, that's a well big because deal. they're really they're not stupid. Of course, they see that yeah. this is a, a, a this is this is interesting in America. And we saw that when you had um, when you had Troy on the bike, right? I mean, it was a that was there was buzz and it was cool. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. there sure. really there really was, and and uh, Corsa um, blessed that. <laughs> I can just imagine what that's going to look like. Do can you tell who the rider is? No. Or, no. No, not for me to announce the team. Fair enough. Got it. I'd love to. No, but, I understood. Uh, understood. But, oh, that's um, very that's that's like very like wet just like wet your appetite. Like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to hear that. That's the Triumph and, and Ducati, uh two storied names. Kawasaki's uh, still gotta be in, right? Oh, Kawasaki Kawasaki had the majority of the field it's last a, it's year. It's arguably the best bike out there, right? It certainly was up until last year, and Brian Smith won the championship on that bike yeah. um, and beat all the XRs. How it happens this year, I don't know. It's unwritten. Yeah, sure. You know, there's um, there's a three-man Harley-Davidson factory yeah, team for the first time, on, not only on the new XG engine, but on a heavily worked-over XG engine yeah. that they've been working on over right. over the winter. Um, new heads and this is the water cooled 750 cc version. Correct. I'm gonna make sure the listeners know. But it's a factory Vance and Hines team. Yeah. I mean, Vance and Hines have done yeah. the development on this, and sure. they're uh, they're no mugs. So Harley Davidson have uh, have tooled up for this year. Are they calling themselves the Wrecking Crew by any chance, or is that no? That's not. A I, uh, I I I. <laughs> I think there's a lot of wrecking crews out there <laughs> yeah, this year. Right. <laughs> um, I'm hearing that Indian are calling theirs the wrecking crew yeah. as well because there's a three three rider Indian effort. You know, two factory riders under the uh, Ricky Howerton uh, banner and Jared Mees, who runs his own team. So there are going to be six factory riders on the grid at Daytona for the first time in the in the history of the sport. Never been six factory riders. The fact is, there are going to be more than six as the season yeah, goes on. Of course, on. sure. And we're going to have brands from Europe from North America and from Asia racing in America. Tell me another race discipline where you can do that. There isn't one. Motocross? 
Japanese, a bit of European, no yeah. American brands. Road racing, no American brands. We're going to have the only pro sport that has got the whole industry participating in it. And this is before I even talk about the singles class we've created. So um, the twins class is 650cc up to 999, and they're prototype chassis, and they could be either race-developed engines or they could be street bike. Colloquially known as a, a framer, a lot of people would call Correct. Flat track bikes, if you hear this, it's part of the nomenclature is if it was a, a factory frame, it's a factory frame, but a framer was some special, special everything and yep. anything about it bespoke to that. Yeah. And that, and that really, that really describes the twins class, yeah. which is, um, also more horsepower, more speed, uh, and the senior riders alongside it, we've created, um, a singles class, which is 450 CC production bikes basically 450cc factory um, motocross bikes. So all four of the Japanese brands have one of these, KTM, Husqvarna, yeah. and so on. Um, and by separating the classes so distinctly, we've had the benefit not only of everybody jumping into the twins class, but actually everybody's jumping into the singles class as well. Because now for the first time, all the factories see it as a level playing field to compete. Last year, the lower class, which we called we called GNC2, mm. was 450 singles at some rounds, but twins at others. Nah, yeah, it's confusing. And and the and the and the GNC1 Premier class was twins at most rounds, but guess what? Singles at some. So you're a factory Harley Davidson rider. You had to ride your CRF 450 Honda at some yeah, rounds. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. And you know, coming from an OEM background, that is the kiss of death for factory involvement. So by separating the classes, we made it much easier for sponsors and for OEMs to get in the sport. And that really is the catalyst for everything. We got Husqvarna in our series this year. Like factory, they're going to put that on a, a really? Wow. Husqvarna just announced this week their contingency program <laughs> at $85,000. Wow. Mm. Holy crap. That's great. We're going to have total contingencies in our sport this year, total fund, probably about a million dollars. Wow. That's never happened, yeah, ever. Sure. Not, not, not even at the heyday in the 80s? No. no, nowhere near. Give you a comparison. Total amount of contingencies posted last year was about 225,000. Wow. It's, it's what's possible when people get excited. Yeah, sure. People will just want to get excited in this sport, right? I think, not that's, I think that's, that's the thing, right? Like, Road racing has been languishing for so long and flat track's been off the radar for so long and Supercross has been doing well. But Supercross does great. It's got you gotta be into that if for it to be your thing. So it's it's good to see an approachable sport format rise to the top because it kind of feels like like heck, if I'm getting excited about it and I'm like your typical sport bike guy, that should be saying something. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. So it's this, I feel like this industry needs a win. Yeah. Well, look at this month's issue of Cycle World. Just hit the newsstand this week. What's on the front cover? A factory-built Yamaha flat track bike. Hmm. The DT-07. Now, okay, it's built out of Southern California sure. instead of Japan, but it's Yamaha saying, hmm, this is interesting. And you'll see some derivative of that bike on the on the track this year. But sure. but it's not like they have a team and they're doing this. You're just saying that at some point they're going to start doing some testing. They're going to have to race it, right? Yeah, I don't think any of the um, outside of Indian and Harley, 
no other factories this year are going to show their hand. Yeah. They're going to support teams in the paddock. Sure. Um, so Triumph is doing that. Ducati's doing that. Husky's doing that. Uh, Yamaha's doing that. I know that Honda are giving support and machinery to Richie Morris Racing yeah. this year. Uh, and Shayna Texter is going to race um, the singles class. She's she's switching from the twins class to the singles because the singles is now worth winning. Yeah, and she's going to be racing the new 2017 CRF 450, wow. which is it's a which big is, deal. Have you seen that bike? Yeah, yeah, that's a hell of a bike. Sure, that's that's one of those things Honda does every now and then when they just make a big statement. They say, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's the new here's, gold here's standard. the new line, boys. Catch here's up. the new line." Well, they've done that, and, that, and they've they've certainly told me in words of one syllable that's what they're doing. <laughs> so, which is great. I, I mean, I love Honda. They are the engineers of the industry, right? Um, and Honda have, Honda have launched this new bike and are, uh, are giving support to Shayna Texter. I mean, uh, no female has ever won um, a championship in yeah, sure. sport. Um, she's won some races. Yeah, yeah. But I think There's potential uh, there. I think it, a lot of people are going to be following that this yeah, year. She's experienced. She's great on the bike. She's great on miles and on half miles. And the bike is, um, is a serious prospect. So we'll see. But an, another subplot. Yeah, sure. We need a lot of subplot. Uh, you got another one, and I want—I'll be curious to see what you have to say after tomorrow's race, because you're going to go watch the one show, mm. flat track race, yep. where uh, the, the company I'm working for, Alta, is going to have one of the electric bikes. It'll be interesting to see, because I know that they—I don't know the backstory that well, but I know that it's not an easy thing for Feld, which is the Supercross, to accept this electric bike because it's kind of an unknown quantity mm. so you say it makes 40 horsepower which is 250 but it makes it in a different way and it weighs about this much where the heck are we going to put this so we at alta or they did at the time before i i became part of the team did that red bull straight rhythm and it was like that was what got me to call them and say yep i'm really into this i yeah. very much so now what do you think or how i mean not to put you on the spot but i'm curious what your brain would think was such a complete outlier uh, re relative to not being a piston engine, I don't think anyone um, can continue to deny that this technology is going to be very significant in the future of the bike business. I've ridden a few electric bikes. In fact, I've ridden a, a couple of Alta bikes, and it's a different kind of motorcycling. I rode one around in San Francisco. I didn't really didn't want to get off the bike. I was wiping out everybody from every stoplight in San Francisco, <laughs> whatever they were riding, two yeah. wheels or four yeah. wheels. And it was a, it was like that giggle time in your helmet. Yeah. Um, we're in the infancy of the, of, of the development of the technology. Um, I don't think anybody could say that the technology is not going to reinvent itself several times, maybe in a very short space of time. And maybe 10 years from now, we're all riding electric bikes and, and we're gazing at internal combustion engines in museums. Maybe not. I don't think so. Maybe not. But but my mind is open to who knows what's going to happen. Um, so I think it's our responsibility at, at sanctioning level in sports to have an open mind and to say, if we can find an opportunity um, to include them in our show and to show the fans what's going on here and give these pioneer brands an opportunity to develop their product, yeah. we should do it. Because that's kind of the key thing for me. I'm looking at it like, they can do this flat track race and it's rad and there's going to be a lot of high level people there and but Salem flat tracks a certain size but if you said hey you want to do a kind of an exposition and you come to the one of the TTs or something else that the that the bike would uh, be 
probably pretty competitive in. And you don't get points, but you get to be in the show, right? And if you win, you get a trophy, but you don't have to enter. That would be, I'd be so stoked because I'm, I'm worried about it when I hear about this Feld thing. Like it's tough to get, it's tough to break through. And I understand it because you've got all the manufacturers that are involved. I would, I would imagine there's a bit of worry. And they're like, whoa, this is an outlier coming in. But I, I also just like being in an underdog situation and want to see it happen, right? I don't, ha- I don't have the answers on it yet, and it's part of the reason I'm in town sure. um, this weekend is to, uh, you know, go down to Salem tomorrow and have a look at the bike and chat to the team. And uh, you know, Becca has been hounding me to do this. Oh, really? Okay, oh, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah, right, yeah. that doesn't surprise me, but I guess I don't. I've kind of had to. I'm I'm running my own game, right? Yep. So that's really cool to hear. No, I'm John, glad to hear uh, that you guys are chatting. John Beckerfee at, at, at Alta has uh, has been persistent in the last few months. Come on, Michael, come yeah. and have a look at it. Tell us what we need to do, which is great. That yeah, that's, that's what cool. he should be doing. Sure. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and didn't he work for you for quite yeah, a bit? Yeah, 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 yeah. John did. Yeah. Oh yeah. God, this it's industry. a small business. It's industry, it's, I tell you. It's really small. Um, so uh, so I'm I'm uh, I'm open minded about it and. Um, uh, and I don't, you know, I, I don't see a path, but yeah. that doesn't matter. Yeah, sure. Um, what matters is educating yourself and, and seeing what you can do to, uh, to, to, to incorporate it and to, and to take it to a wider audience. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll right see. On. Right on. Um, uh, uh, do you have any other major questions at this stage? Cause I know we're probably going, we're uh, over. Yeah. By a lot. So I wanted to, but I have a, a couple things I wanted to ask. I, yeah, if you have time, it's two fifteen now. Do mm-hmm. you have enough time to stick for a little bit longer? I think so. All right, I want to know from your days in in at the Honda level in in England. I remember very vaguely stories of having to tend riders from the Isle of Man or at the Isle of Man, and I wanted to hear a good Isle of Man, just a juicy good oh, Isle of Man story. Man, there are many. I bet. Right. <laughs> so pick one if you can. Okay. I really okay. appreciate it. So I was a kid when I was working for. Honda UK. And the first couple of years I was there, I would do anything. I mean, I just, I felt like I was allowed into the temple. Um, so I was the guy who volunteered for anything and everything because it was all cool. And it, it got me noticed enough that uh, I was asked if I'd like to uh, become a member of the support team, Honda Britain support team for Isle of Man Week. Uh, yeah. Of course. Um, what it involved doing the first couple of years was riding up from London to Liverpool on a press fleet that we would um, give to a journalist over at the Isle of Man. Um, So I had to safely ride the bike from London up to Liverpool, which is about 200 miles. In England, that's really quite a long way. Um, And then get on a ferry, a ferry boat from Liverpool to Douglas and the Isle of Man and bring the bike uh, and, and make sure the journalists got the, the bike they wanted and then just hang out for the rest of the week and do whatever Mah. was being asked. Whatever was being asked was always cool. Even the uncool things were cool. <laughs> um, and so you stay up late and you get up early and you're there when the mist is still lifting at Douglas and you're lugging crates and boxes or driving a van for the Honda Britain and... And, and and bear in mind, back in back in those days, in the uh, mid late eighties, Honda owned the Isle of Man. Sure, I mean, really owned it. It wasn't just Joey yeah. Dunlop. It was Honda did it right, and it's because everything was funded directly from HRC in Japan. 
we at Honda UK, we were just the conduits. We were the hired <laughs> help. HRC had a special place in their heart yeah. for the Isle of Man TT because it was the first place they ever raced outside of Japan. The first yeah. place Mr. Honda took his racing to the world stage was the Isle of Man. And so it was sacred ground. So they turned up with everything. So it was cool to be involved. So, so, <laughs> so I must have not upset anybody the first year and must have made myself useful because the second year I was asked to go, it was kind of assumed I was going now, which awesome. And I was attached closer to the team. I was basically running press releases and things. This is the days before cell phones. Actually, I think there's days before the telephone, maybe. I, <laughs> but but we, we would print out press releases and I'd have to run and give them to yeah. people with, uh, you know, timing or, or a quote from one of the riders or what was happening because the race was delayed. So I was a runner for Honda Britain, which meant that I was at the communications center, which was basically a pop-up tent next to the race team. Yeah. Got to know a few of the racers. It was, you know... Uh, completely mad, all of them. Um, and then started getting invited to hang out with them. Okay. So the story is this. By the time the third year came, which was about 80, I don't know, 88 or 89. So this is deep in the RC30 or RVF. These are probably RVFs. That oh, are like, there were some one-off bikes yeah, that came sure. over. This is like Suzuka 8-hour straight to... That no one yeah. was allowed to touch. Sure. There was a bike called the 6 X VFR. <laughs> Look it up one day. Oh, a guy called yeah. a guy called Campbell, a New Zealand racer in the eighties, raced this. It was it looked like a VFR, an interceptor. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the decal was offered off a VFR. <laughs> right. Everything right. else was okay. pure drool. Okay, right. so we had those and RVFs. Yeah, and, sure. Yeah. So year three, I got to hang out with the team and was really a part of Honda Britain PR team by this time. And the guy who was the manager of uh, HRC Honda Britain said to me, okay, I don't care if you do anything this week, he said, except two things. There are two things I'm going to rely on you for. Yeah, and you better not let me down, he said, because the whole running of the team is dependent on this. Yeah, why? He said, first one is, you need to make sure Joey Dunlop goes to bed. <laughs> hmm? Your job is to make sure Joey Dunlop goes to bed. You need to eyeball the fact that he went to bed. Good luck. Yeah, okay. I, uh, sounds, sounds easy. He said, on the second job is to make sure Steve Hislop gets out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Both were near impossible tasks. I bet. <laughs> Joey Dunlop, who was an amazing racer and and... You know, his record at the Isle of Man is, is um, uh, unimpeachable. He never, he didn't look like a motorcycle racer. Yeah. He, Joey never looked fit. Yeah. Um, he, he always had that kind of slightly hangdog um, look of someone who's had about 10 Guinnesses too many the night before. It's funny that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and he smoked like a chimney. Yeah. Um, and really, I'm an outside of his close entourage. No one could actually understand a word he was saying. Sure. I couldn't. Sure. And I had to get quotes and stuff out of him. Where was he from exactly? He was from Northern Ireland. So way northern. And it was just a very distinct, not, not a different language, but might as well have been. 
You know, I'm not sure if it was a different language because who, <laughs> who, who really knew? Yeah. <laughs> but okay. but but Joe but Joey was in his element yeah. at the Isle of Man, and um, he obviously had an extraordinary talent, no doubt about that, and and a kind of oneness with that TT circuit that no one I ever saw since had, almost like it was his backyard. Um, but getting him to go to bed, man, there's a there's a <laughs> I don't know if it's still there, but there was a place in Douglas called the Lee, I think called the Lido. And it was basically a, I hesitate to call it a nightclub because that makes it sound much better than it really was. <laughs> but it was basically this drinking place where everybody went and it was a kind of disco nightclub. And there was a VIP room upstairs. And I, I don't want you to get carried away with visions of VIP rooms because mm -hmm you wouldn't put your worst enemy in this room unless you'd seen the disco downstairs, in which case. <laughs> so to, to get into the VIP room, you had to be somebody um, from one of the big teams. Yeah. So we're all Honda Britain, and, you know, from the cap to the laces in your shoes, you are about as Honda Britain as you could ever be. So we always got in, and, and you, you'd go in there with the team, and Joey would be sitting at a table, and the table would be covered in pint glasses, some empty, but mostly full. And they were all Joey's. People would just buy him drinks. Hey, Joey, good luck tomorrow. Have another pint. So we talked a little earlier about how the world's changed and it's all health and safety and so on now. Yeah. This is about as far from health and safety as yeah. you could possibly get. Yeah. And, and it has created legend. But I was there and I can tell you it's true. It was all true. In fact, a lot more was true than yeah. anybody. It was gladiatorial. Still is. It was really man and machine against the element. Sure. I mean, it could be 75 degrees in Douglas, and it could be 44 and pouring with rain on the mountain. Yeah. How do you set a bike up for that? Well, you don't. You don't. You set up a Joey Dunlop for that. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so my Isle of Man, my, my first Isle of Man story, the best one is is being the, the poor sap who had to make one rider go to bed and the other one get out of bed. <laughs> And the Delta time, you had to try and sleep, and that probably wasn't. I yeah, yeah. That, that really was very secondary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and loving the whole the whole thing all the way through, probably every minute of it. Oh, I still I still look back on that time. Uh, you know that f like four year period when I worked with Honda Britain for those weeks as as some of the most amazing time of my life. That you pinch yourself. You were you were in that. Yeah. You were you were part of that. You're really insignificant, tiny part of it. But you were there. You saw all that stuff. And it was great until eighty nine. Eighty nine was the last year I worked there. Um, before I moved on to Honda Europe. But in eighty nine we had we had some pretty bad stuff go on the Isle of Man, including um a uh, factory Suzuki rider, a guy called Mesmela, who was one of the most amazing guys, you know, prankster, always had a smile on his face, factory rider for Suzuki, got killed and got killed in a really horrible way uh, in one of the races. And it um, and his teammate got killed as well. Mm. Um, and it was, a, it was a brutal year, 89. Um, it was very interesting that um, this was a period when um, street superbikes were moving very fast. Yeah. If you think about the development, the late 80s, early 90s was an explosion of development. And most of the development was in horsepower. 
not chassis. Well, I think they were doing the best they could, yeah. but you know how these tires, the, chassis, everything right. was not quite. Uh, they weren't and, syncopated. And I mean, I remember a, a racer um, for, uh, for for us at Honda Britain, a guy called Nick Jeffries. Yeah. Nick Jeffries, one of the nice Yorkshire guy, owner of a dealership, and 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 a part-time road racer, but raced for Honda Britain at the Isle of Man because he knew the Isle of Man. Yeah, any relation to David Jeffries? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, his uncle. Okay. Um, uh, and Tony Jeffries was his brother, who was a previous Isle of Man race. I mean, real yeah, family yeah. died in the wool. A dynasty. Yeah, and and awesome guys. I mean, just just colossal human beings and they were from yorkshire and i'm from london it's like if i was from new york city and mm. these races were all from some small town in texas yeah yeah is that you almost culturally there's nothing to say <laughs> um and they treat you all with suspicion because you're from the smoke the big smoke they um, called it the big smoke yeah just because it was a big well it used island. to be london yeah. used to be polluted as hell yeah, so it's sure. called the big smoke um and I think it still is in various places. But anyway, so, <laughs> so the Jeffries family were great guys. Nick Jeffries was one of our racers at the Isle of Man. And he raced in um, the uh, the senior production race, the big production race, 1,000cc production race, on a 1989 CBR 1000. Google it. Yeah. You remember that bike? No. It was okay. Do you remember the first generation? It was a one-off thing, right? Do you remember the first generation CBR? Oh my 1000, god! I do hurricane. know what you're talking about. There was the a big whale. It was a pig, right? He raced. I did not know that. He raced a. He raced one. At that the was like Man. a mini Goldwing at that time, right? It might as well have been. It was huge, right? <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, I don't remember where he finished. I do remember looking at the bike when he brought it in at the end of the race, and basically. The fairing lowers on both sides had completely <laughs> worn through, and he'd gone mm. through the headers. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm gonna have to look that up. I really like look it. it up. Yeah, sure. Nick Jeffries, nineteen, I think, nineteen eighty-eight, eighty-nine, rose CBR one thousand <laughs> in the production race. It's all we had. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, but some of the other bikes that were uh, on paper better suited to racing, like the GSXR eleven hundred. Mm-hmm. That was uh, that was a weapon, and so I remember. So th the end of my time working at the Isle of Man was tinged with, uh, with that, with real sadness around. I mean, because it's a brutal place. Yeah, there's, absolutely. It, there's there's really not much room for error. Were you there when the Nortons were ra ra racing, or was that just before? <sighs> that was the, the, I wasn't there. Yeah, during, so I that must have been 1990 and on. Yeah. I think. Yeah, that's when I'd moved. I'd left. Uh, I left Honda in 1990 and went to go and work for triumph when we were building the new triumph company and that was when the nortons were coming up and you worked directly for john bloor yeah right? he hired me yeah yeah all right well we're gonna have to save that for for another <laughs> podcast because we gotta we gotta end this up but that's i knew it would be good i didn't think it'd be this good i think um your your job is trying to figure out how to tighten this this up to where all the stories right there's so many good stories yeah we might have to do a double <laughs> a double we'll have to have you we'll have to have you back the next time you're around in, in portland michael either sure. that or come to you or meet you in at, at one of these races so we should do that yeah. we're all over the country all year yeah i know i'm gonna have to look at the schedule and figure this out so when is the first race is it uh daytona what date uh march the 16th okay and for the first time inside the speedway yeah i saw that it's a tt course yeah. we're building a tt uh, course so in the trioval right in front of the grandstands where the supercross is probably right? we're building it underneath the supercross 
our track goes in first. They build the supercross on top of it. Rad. They scrape the supercross off, and there's our track. <laughs> there's no way of doing it in the time otherwise. Yeah, sure. Huh. And it makes sense, right? That's yeah. not too bad. Oh my gosh, this is going to be rad. We're super excited. It will be a big deal. I mean, those twins on a TT in the Oh, speedway. so it's going to be the twins. It's not. Oh, wow. Both classes run every race this year. Okay. So even ev- all the TTs, all of them? Yeah, we've um, re-engineered Peoria a bit for yeah. this year. We've wi- we've had the track widened okay. in conjunction with the club that owns that. Sure, sure. Um, the Peoria Motorcycle Club. We're widening the track. Um, we're reshaping the jump yeah. um, so that it's suitable for larger, okay. more powerful bikes. Changing the fencing. I mean, we've re-engineered Peoria this for the future. Very good to hear. It. Very interesting. Very intriguing. And there'll be a TT during sturgis week yeah. at the buffalo chip which will be quite something that's where we need to go that we need is to, exactly we need, where you need to go that is a spectacle that i've always wanted to and i can just imagine cruising an alta down this <laughs> right that's what i want to do just to do it for the for the comedy of it my own personal oh, internal your, monologue your little ponytail of too. Sing, right yeah. singing down the road oh, in, in the middle of sturgis so yeah maybe we'll have to think about that Right on. Okay. Thank you very much, Michael. We appreciate yeah, your pleasure. time. Yeah. Uh, enjoy the rest of the Good show. Good to catch and up with you guys. We'll see you at, at the track tomorrow. Again, fingers crossed. If things go well tonight for me, I might race tomorrow. So hopefully uh, we'll see Looking you. Looking forward to it. Right on. Jensen, kick stands up. Yeah. Good talk. See you out there. Student induction program. They brought you in and guys, worked I'm sorry. You. I forgot to hit the button. You gotta be kidding me. I am me. not kidding you. Of course you would. <sighs> of the, the one time. And the tea. I mean, and that was tea. really good. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, <laughs> Actually, I'm glad we had the conversation anyway. Uh, right? Maybe we can fake it again. No, um, I don't I, I don't think you can fake that. You can't fake gold, right? <laughs> well, I'm not an alchemist. Okay. Did you put it on now? It's on now. Okay. All right. Five oh, seconds. Oh my god. So embarrassing. Of course you would. I knew it was, we we knew that there was yeah. gonna be something fucked it's up. It's the most unintuitive thing. You have to hit the record button twice. You think you hit it just once and yeah. you're recording. No, you have to hit it a second time. So I blame the technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jensen's not gonna. <laughs> They'll be all right. <sighs>